Hey, what's up, everybody? This is John Odermatt, your host here on Felony Friday, and I want to try something new. Um, don't have an ad for you here or anything like that, but I have a request. So I want to try something with Apple Podcast reviews. Um, they're very important in podcasts, and they help you get more attention and eyeballs on your podcast. You get in the, uh, you know, you rank up in the categories, all that stuff. So I would like people to give five-star reviews. So I'm going to reward people who give us five-star reviews, review the podcast, say something nice, and then if after you do that, if you drop either a topic you'd like me to talk about, a question, and ask me anything, you know, you can ask me a random question, and I will address it on the show if it's if it's appropriate. But you can drop that after your five-star rating and your review, put what you want to talk about there on the show I will talk about it, and um, and it helps the show. It helps you influence the show. It's a uh, it's a win win. So please consider doing that. Make sure, even if you listen on you know Spotify or Overcast or whatever, do it on Apple Podcast. They have the most control right now, so do it there, and uh, we'll see what happens. All right, thank you very much. Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, welcome back to another edition of Felony Friday, a weekly show right here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Man, we just have some incredible things going on in the country right now with uh, really just the huge protests that are obviously coming out, uh, people united against uh, police brutality, standing up for racism, standing up for systematic racism in the policing system. Uh, My guest today, we're going to uh, get into talking about specifically that in Minneapolis, uh, the movement there to abolish the police. Going to talk with Tony Williams. He's one of the contributors there to MPD 150. Um, which is one of the organizations, one of the, I guess it's a, it's a loosely affiliated group of, uh, uh, you know, local people, activists, art, artists, researchers, organizers, um, who have come together and they've done research over the 150 year uh, history of uh, uh, the Minneapolis Police Department. And uh, they have an impressive website. So we're going to have a great talk with Tony. But before we get to that, I want to talk about some really, Amazing things uh, that are happening in our at the federal level um, with legislation and at the local level in uh, in one state in particular. So we'll start with uh, with that one state. And you know, if you listened last week, I talked about my my six uh, common sense, my six essential policing and criminal justice reforms that, in order to revamp the system and start to move things in a direction where we can move away from a, uh, a policing model and into more of a, a private model, community-based model, we need to implement uh, these six things. I've expanded it to seven recently. I did publish an article, which I'll link to on the show notes page here today. Um, so the, the, the seven now are demilitarize the police, decriminalize all drugs, end occupational licensing. That's mandatory occupational licensing coming from the state, um, banning no-knock raids, ending qualified immunity, stopping the use of taxpayer funds to pay victims of police brutality, and the one I added, ending civil asset forfeiture. And to turn our attention to for a moment here, and I don't want to take a lot of time, I want to get to this interview, but I do want to talk about what's happening 
um, in Kentucky right now in Louisville. Um, this is where uh, Breonna Taylor, of course, she was murdered in her sleep during a, uh, a no-knock raid uh, in her house where the, the cops actually went to the wrong house and, uh, and killed her. Uh, so what's happened in Kentucky, Kentucky has effectively banned uh, no-knock raids. It's known as uh, Breonna's Law, and the new order uh, will, will ban police from forcibly entering a home without announcing themselves first. So I cannot, um, you know, I can't overstate how important this is for uh, a movement of pushing back against police brutality, against the, the police state that it just seemed like there was no end in sight for this for years and years and years, as long as I've been doing this show. And for the first time, I'm a little bit positive that we're, that we're making some progress here. So that's great uh, to have that. But on top of it, um, we have uh, Mr. Rand Paul, old uh, Randy Pants in the, uh, in the U.S. Senate, is going to be filing legislation. Um, he's also, he's talked with uh, Breonna Taylor's family. And his legislation uh, would, would ban, would effectively end no-knock raids in the United States. Amazing. Now, I can't imagine, uh, I shouldn't get ahead of myself, but you would think that the liberals in the Senate would be in favor of this, correct? Uh, they're getting pressure from their constituencies in uh, urban areas across the United States. You would think that they would be uh, on board with this. So we'll see what happens. It could be an interesting mix of liberals, Democrats, and Republicans coming together uh, to pass this bill. Would be a game changer if this passes. Would be so, so awesome. Um, we're going to track this closely. And who knows what would happen in the House. The House is a is a whole nother battle, but um, to have this this raised up right now during election season, talking about it, the banning of no-knock raids, one item, only one item on the uh, the seven common sense uh, policing and justice reform, um, justice reforms that we need to push through, but there is another one that we, we're getting some traction on, talking about banning qualified, or ending, I should say, talking about ending qualified immunity. Justin Amash, the now libertarian congressman from Michigan, he now has tripartisan support uh, for his bill to end qualified immunity. And there's been, uh, you know, there was a huge petition that a lot of uh, sports, uh, you know, athletes and coaches and uh, people in that world have have signed to uh, to end qualified immunity. Um, there's been a lot of pushback from obviously. Uh, police unions and people who are sympathetic to police say, well, how are police going to do their job if they're worried about getting sued? That's the point. That's the point. That's what puts things in, uh, puts things back in, in uh, on kilter. When uh, you have fear of being sued, uh, you're actually going to do your job and uh, be more respectful of people when you know that they actually have rights too and you can't just shove your boot down their throat. So good stuff there. I'm excited for those two things. We'll continue to track everything that's going on. But I want to get to this interview today uh, with uh, Tony Williams. And I just want to point out, because people will ask me stuff after this interview. They'll ask me questions. They'll say, John, you should have asked him this. You should have <clears throat> should have pushed back here. You should have done this here. You should have... Listen, listen. Now it's not the time for that. Now, Tony is... He comes from the left side of things. That's no secret. I'm 
a libertarian. Um, I come from it from a, a different angle. So we have different approaches. There is a lot of overlap, I think, between our philosophy. And that's what this is about. This is about that overlap. So we're going to focus on that overlap today, talk about that. I do want to hopefully bring uh, Tony back on as things progress in Minneapolis. It looks like things are um, trending towards the police being abolished. So we're going to keep a close eye on that story as well. And let's just jump into this interview right now with Tony Williams. All right. My guest today on Felony Friday is Tony Williams. Tony is a contributor to MPD 150. Uh, MPD 150 is an effort by local organizers, researchers, artists, and activists in which they've published an investigation into the conduct of the Minneapolis Police Department throughout its 150-year history and are calling for abolishing uh, the police department. Just a quick uh, little overview from their website, but I'm sure Tony will go into more detail and we'll ask more questions. But uh, the goal of the initiative is to shift the discussion of police violence in Minneapolis from one of procedural reforms to one of meaningful structural change. We will achieve this by presenting a practical pathway for dismantling of the Minneapolis Police Department, the transference of its social service functions to community-based agencies and organizations, the replacements of its emergency intervention functions with models not based on military methods, and the redirection of its resources to support support community, resilience, and people-directed development. So a lot of uh, to talk about there. We'll dive into it. Tony, welcome to Felony Friday. Yeah, thanks for having me on, John. It's a it's a really great moment here in Minneapolis, and happy to be able to share it with you. Yeah, very uh, very historical things uh, going on right now, and I'm so happy that you were able to set some time aside uh, to talk to us because you are on the ground there in Minneapolis, involved in what's happening. So first, before we uh, get into talking about MPD 150, abolishing police, everything that's that's going on on the ground in Minneapolis, um, just so my audience can get to know more about you as an activist, as a person, could you just share some some of your background, you know, what got you into activism, what got you in specifically to uh, reforming the police, you know, being so interested in uh, stopping uh, this really epidemic of police brutality that we see? Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up in Minneapolis. Um, I'm from here originally. Um, I'm as of today, actually, it's my birthday. Um, I'm a 27 year old um, cis black man living in Minneapolis. Um And um, I grew up in sort of a relative zone of privilege in South Minneapolis, um, upper middle class family. Um, And um, I'm pretty light skinned, so was like set aside from a lot of the deep racism that my black brothers and sisters experienced here. Um, But I think I was like always kind of aware that something wasn't quite right um, in my particular, in my city, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And it it was clear to me, I think in more subconscious ways until I became a teenager, Um, But then it became increasingly obvious to me how deeply racism is rooted in our city. Um, I mean, you see um, black and brown folks um, stuck in particular neighborhoods that were created through redlining and the creation of the highway system in the 50s. Um, Immense socioeconomic disparities between different groups of folks um, and a police department that causes all kinds of trouble. Um, I mean, in addition to being um, an activist, I also make music. I'm a podcaster. Um, I do kind of a, I actually do martial arts, so I do historical European sword fighting, um, as well as a couple Chinese traditional martial arts. Um, I went out to college in California, um, to Santa Clara University in the Bay Area, 
Um, and it was really there that I got invested in organizing. I think um, Minneapolis is kind of a progressive bubble, and though it still has a lot of problems, it's kind of light years between being on the ground here in Minneapolis and then going to um, an extremely privileged white liberal arts college um, and just seeing the difference between the realities of the people that I was going to school with and the people that I knew back in Minneapolis. Um, my senior year is really when I got into organizing. Um, I've been studying sociology um, and um, having a lot of conversations about anarchism um, and, um, and socialism and left-wing activism in general um, while I was back in Minneapolis, but it was really um, the murder of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri that, um, that touched off my involvement um, in the Black Lives Matter movement. And um, it just became incredibly clear to me, I think, that, um, you know, aside from the statistics and, um, you know, the social sciences research that validates police racism, that um, this system is just, like, deeply entrenched and deeply harmful. Um, and so I got involved with police, anti-police brutality organizing efforts, um, went to the National Day um, Against Police Brutality Action in Oakland that year um, in 2014. Mm -hmm. and was confronted with massive lines of militarized riot cops, you know, to a peaceful demonstration. I think that further radicalized me. Um, was, that, was that your first time, you know, actually seeing that in person? Yeah. I mean, I, I certainly think it was the first time that I had seen that level of like turn up and demonstrated on their part, like the, mm -hmm. the deep police escalation. Um, I've been to protests in Minneapolis, but Minneapolis police um, tend to sort of demilitarize in the face of most protests because they, you know, that's sort of their playbook in order to keep people mollified. Um, but Oakland was another matter entirely. Um, and I actually, Minneapolis has gotten much closer to Oakland in its response to protests over the last five years. So I was, I was, was going to say the, the response to this, the latest protests were pretty militarized, right? Incredibly militarized to the point where the actual military got called in, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I, yeah, so I got more and more involved um, and when I went back to campus that winter, um, I got involved in some racial justice organizing on campus. Um, and that actually felt pretty successful. And so by the end of that, I was like, hmm, I think I want to be an organizer. Um, I moved back to Minneapolis in June 2015, so five years ago, um, and got involved in a lot of different organizing. Again, mostly black liberation organizing around economic issues and criminal justice issues. Um, and pretty quickly, Minneapolis has had, you know, a, a spate of a bunch of high profile police killings. And so I've been very involved in the movement around all of those things. Um, after Jamar Clark was killed by the Minneapolis Police Department, I was part of the group that occupied the fourth precinct um, for 18 days. After Philando Castile was murdered, um, I was part of the group that occupied the governor's mansion and protested in response to that. Um, Thurman Blevins, Travis Jordan, Justine DeMond, and now George Floyd. Um, these are all high-profile police killings that have happened in the Twin Cities in the last five years. Um, and, and I think pushed me, each one of them pushed me closer and closer um, to being a police abolitionist. Um, and I think especially after protesting for 18 days outside a police precinct in the freezing cold um, and demanding reform and hearing the elected officials say, we hear you, we see you, we're interested in reform too, we have, the, we have a chief who's progressive, all of these things, um, and then seeing it all amount to nothing, right? Seeing the next killing and the next one after that and the next one after that happen, um, I think really radicalized me around policing and brought me to the conclusion that the police are irreformable um, and that we need to look to other systems of public safety to keep our community safe. So what do you think was different about, you know, all those past protests that didn't really um, 
get the amount of energy and uh, really the amount of just people, the mass people behind them that, um, you know, the killing of George Floyd has really uh, woken up in, in this country. W- what do you think is different in the environment today than was different, um, you know, in, in past protests? Yeah, I mean, I think there are a lot of answers to that. But first, I want to talk a little bit about MPD 150. And I promise I'll circle back around. Oh, sure, um, sure. Go for it. So MPD 150 is this initiative um, that came about in 2016. And it, it came about very much in response to the Jamar Clark and Philando Castile murders, and people realizing that reform wasn't working. Um, and that, you know, theoretically, we had the right chief of police and the right mayor and the right policy changes on the table. And um, all of it amounted to nothing. And so what we did was we came together and we worked on a report, which you can find at mpd150.com. And it's called Enough is Enough, a 150-year performance review of the Minneapolis Police Department. What we realized was there actually needed to be a deeper context and a deeper narrative push around what police abolition actually looks like um, in our community. And so we divided the report into three sections and dozens of community members worked on this report with um, very few financial resources, certainly no staff certainly no office, none of that. Um, And um, I think we came up with a really powerful statement. So the first third of the report talks about the history of the Minneapolis Police Department and was built with painstaking um, original primary source research, um, especially a lot in the archives of the Minnesota Historical Society. And it basically is the first independent history of the Minneapolis Police Department that's ever been written. Um, and when you start diving in there, you realize that there's this through line in the history of the department. Um, and it's a through line of brutality and racism. And so what you see happening is, um, a violent incident happens, right? Um, where a police officer hurts or kills a member of the community, Mm -hmm. usually black or native, but sometimes white, um, or other races, right? And, um, then, uh, the community rises up in protest and outrage, uh, sometimes, you know, usually nonviolently, but sometimes in a riot or an insurrection. Um, politicians propose sort of a standard slate of reforms in response to sort of mollify what's happening. Um, and those reforms are either, are universally either unsuccessful or are rapidly undone by police political power. Um, and we see that cycle happen every few years throughout the history of the department. Um, in the present section of the report, um, we interviewed dozens of community members about their relationship um, with the police, uh, with the police state today. Um, and in the future section of the report, um, we talk about what we envision a police-free Minneapolis looking like right. and how we can actually move towards police abolition. So I think on the ground here in Minneapolis, to get back to your original question, mm-hmm. um, one of the things that's changed is that we have that context now. And we've seen so many high profile police killings here over the last five years. And so many people are so deeply politicized around it at this point that it's impossible to see the George Floyd murder um, as anything but a clear statement that police culture cannot be fixed Mm -hmm. and has to be abolished. And I just like, as a person who's been on the ground in many moments of anti-police brutality work, it is different here right now. And, you know, at every other previous protest I'd been to, people were like, you know, we need more officers of color. We need um, implicit bias training. We need stronger accountability measures. And that's not the narrative that we're seeing anymore. Um, Everybody in Minneapolis, I mean, up to and including very comfortable um, upper middle class or upper class white folks um, who are normally, you know, sort of the hugest backstops of the police and prison system are saying, no, this system doesn't work. And we actually do need to fundamentally change it. 
Um, I think so. I think that's what's happening locally. I think the national conversation is a little different, but I think similarly, there's been a lot of behind the scenes abolitionist organizing over the past five years that has become more and more ready to take on the narrative burden of talking about this stuff in a public mm-hmm. way. And I also think there's a symmetry um, of the killing of George Floyd with um, Eric Garner, right? And seeing just like how little has changed since Eric Garner was killed, despite massive uprisings all across the country um, for the last five years. And so I think people are fed up. And I think people have seen that these reforms that supposedly politicians have said were going to resolve these problems are not resolving the problems. Hey, everybody, taking a quick break here from the show. Wanted to remind you all to check out uh, my man Tyler Colford, a.k.a. Crypto Man, and his new song, Free Ross. If you didn't hear my recent interview with Lynn Ulbricht, that was episode Felony Friday, episode 230. Interviewed Lynn Ulbricht, played Tyler's song, uh, Free Ross. It's fantastic, phenomenal. Not just for uh, the message of freeing Ross Ulbricht, but overall for changing the broken criminal justice system. All the proceeds from uh, the Free Ross song, hashtag Free Ross by Crypto Man. You can find it on Spotify and Amazon, Amazon Music. 100% of the proceeds from the song, hashtag Free Ross by Crypto Man, go towards Free and Ross Ulbrich. So please check it out. These are perilous times when they ruin your lives over victimless crimes and they sever your ties from your business loved ones and family wide. New slave play, but they barely pay you. Don't care about work ethic or major. Yeah, and uh, especially with regards to Eric Garner, um, in the latest legislation or bill that the Democrats and Congress have proposed, they've proposed outlying chokeholds used by police officers. And of course, Eric Garner was killed with a chokehold which was outlawed by the New York police department. They weren't supposed to be using that. So absolutely. Absolutely. And I think another example of that is um, the Seattle city council issuing an edict the other day to the Seattle police department that they weren't allowed to use tear gas for 30 days. And they literally used it that night. (laughs) So like, I think it's pretty clear at this point that, um, that police are not under the control of any sort of civilian authority. And they actually resent and push back against every civilian authority or civilian arm of the state um, in order to do whatever they want to do. And they're operating more as, um, you know, their own private militia than they're operating as any arm of anything else. So let's let's start digging into how you abolish the police. You know, I'm assuming this isn't something that happens overnight. Um, no. So what, what is the, uh, what would be, what would this process look like? How, how would you shift from, you know, a, a policing environment to more of a community-based, um, you know, community-based security, community-based outreach uh, where you can actually, um, you know, I don't know what it looks like. Would there still be, would there still be, uh, you know, somewhere with, if, if there was a violent crime taking place where a number where, you know, people could call to get help. What, what would that look like? Yeah. Well, um, I first want to say like when people talk about police abolition, I think a lot of people say, well, that's crazy. We could never live in a society without police. And I think it's important for people to note that from a historical perspective, we've spent the vast majority of our time on this planet as a species without police, mm-hmm. right? Human beings have existed for 200,000 years. And civilization has existed for 10,000 years and policing like a professional paramilitary army that is fielded by the state that hangs out in the city and investigates problems like a fully professional force Mm -hmm. has only existed since the 1600s. 
So when you look at like the broad timeline of our species history, keeping each other safe, police are like the smallest fraction of it. Um, I also like to tell people when they're like, we can't abolish the police. Um, that's crazy. I'm like, look, um, policing in North America has only existed since 1838, which is when Boston created the first police department over here. Um, which means that actually chattel slavery existed in North America for longer than the police have existed in America. And so if we're thinking about the possibility of undoing systems and finding the political will to create a new way um, to structure our society, um, we've done actually things that are much more radical than this before in our country's history. Um, and we can do it again. Um, so along the specific transition questions, I honestly think it's different for every community um, because every community has its own safety needs and its own things right. that, um, that are different about how it communicates with its residents and how people get their needs met. So I don't want to speak for anybody else, but I can speak to what I see a potential transition looking like in Minneapolis. Um, the fact of the matter is that police are really um, not well suited to do most of the things that we ask them to do on a day-to-day -day basis. The vast majority of calls are not response to imminent violent situations, right? They're um, traffic stops, like the one that killed Philando Castile, right? Or they're um, causing trouble for um, sex workers or people who are doing drugs, right? That mm -hmm. um, because of criminalization, right? right? And so there's a lot of policing that we could just throw out overnight and say, this actually, this work doesn't need to be done at all because it doesn't further community safety. It criminalizes and harms our community. Yeah, you now cut out all the, all the nonviolent crimes on the books. That's like, what, 70% probably of what they're doing, at least. Exactly, right? Yeah. I mean, George Floyd was murdered, you know, by a police officer who showed up um, in response to him potentially passing a $20 counterfeit bill. Mm -hmm. Right. And, you know, you just think about, OK, so do we need to respond to a potential counterfeit bill, um, you know, with a police officer who's armed and, you know, willing to choke a community member to death over it, you know, or mm -hmm. can we find another way to resolve that problem? Um, and then there's like a category. So there's like all the stuff that we just don't need to do at all. And then there's the stuff that's sort of indeterminate that police have sort of ended up serving as a social service body rather than like a law enforcement body, right? So like, for example, mental health calls, right? Like if, um, if you have a mental health crisis in Minneapolis right now, you don't have health insurance or access to a therapist, um, pretty much your only recourse is to call, or one of the, the most obvious option that people think of is to call 911. And if you call 911 for a mental health crisis in Minneapolis right now, the primary response is gonna be police officers. And police officers have a certain amount of training around mental health, but ultimately their culture is about subduing threats. Um, and so somebody experiencing a mental health crisis is likely to be perceived as a threat by police officers. And we see that going so poorly so often. Yep. Um, and there's no reason, again, we have another model in Hennepin County, which Minneapolis is in called COPE, um, Community Outreach for Psychiatric Emergencies. And you can call, um, a, a normal local phone number and get a mental health crisis, uh, responder dispatched to your location, um, to talk to people. But again, with programs like that, they're massively underfunded. They don't have the capacity to even meet the calls that they have right now. Um, and they're ultimately treated as less important than police. They're not the primary point of response. Um, and so one thing that I think would be really easy to make happen and has been you know, successfully done in some other places, including Eugene, Oregon, with a program called Cahoots, is we say, okay, so actually we're going to take all of the mental health calls away from police officers entirely and give them to this alternative response structure. 
and um, and link them into 911 so that people can call, you know, or a separate number that's separate from police, right? But have something obvious, publicize it really well, make sure they have the resources that they need and have people be able to call and have that team dispatched. Now, in response to your sort of last point about violence, um, look, I, I don't think any police abolitionists are like ponies and rainbows people that think that we're, you know, going to live, magically live in a society without violence. Um, I think we think that poverty um, and social inequality um, are major contributors towards the violence that we do have in our society. Um, and that um, if we are able to solve a lot of those problems, which we can do with resources we extract from police budgets, um, then we can get a lot of those needs met and invest in prevention instead of cure. Mm -hmm. um, now, again, obviously there are always going to be a very small number of tactical situations um, where violence is required, right? And where people need to be armed to deal with those things. But again, there are a lot of answers as to how that could look that are very different from what policing currently looks like. Um, and so, I mean, we could talk about community watches and militias. Um, we could talk about mutual aid neighborhood defense groups. Um, we could talk about, again, a very small um, peacekeeping force that responds only to tactical situations mm -hmm. and has an immense amount of like scrutiny and organizational um, restriction to scope of work um, so that they're not, you know, getting heavily armed and getting the training to be able to, you know, shoot somebody very efficiently from 50 yards away and then being asked to do traffic stops, right? right? So I think there are a lot of options as to what exactly it could look like, but ultimately I think we in Minneapolis right now are on the path towards developing um, a public safety model that is actually about public safety and isn't about law enforcement. Mm -hmm. And also, I mean, with you know talking about reducing the, the amount of violence, decri decriminalizing drugs, decriminalizing other nonviolent crimes like prostitution, um, you know, a lot of times violence is you know sort of inherent in that in that pro prohibitive market because there's no arbitration. You, if you have a disagreement with someone, you can't go to courts. There's no way to uh, arbitrate that dispute. So a lot of the times it escalates to violence. So if you decriminalize that and you remove that that factor a lot of that violence I, I think would, would probably go away. I agree. Um, so to get into like, like funding. So, you know, obviously the way the police forces are funded now, it's, it's not, it's definitely not voluntary funding. You're funded through uh, taxation. Um, Certainly. So would it be a similar model? Do you foresee some, you know, some aspects of uh, voluntary funding on the community uh, level? I mean, I think ideally we would live in a model, you know, where, um, communities are deeply invested in racial and social justice and then um, feel called to support the work that's happening to keep their communities safe and feel invested in that work. Um, so I don't think involuntary taxation is the ideal model by, by any means, no, right? But given that that's the society that we live in um, and that there are a lot of people out there who do hoard wealth um, and make it difficult for um, you know the public good to be supported, um, I think that this is the model that we have for right now. Um, and so I think that's probably what it looks like in the short term. I will say, though, that we have seen um, an immense amount of independent financial support. Um, the city has been very, I mean, nearly useless in the last two weeks here in Minneapolis in terms of meeting any safety needs. Um, the police and the National Guard who are here um, have been more of an obstacle towards people trying to keep the city safe um, than they have been an asset to it. Um, so, for example, we've seen residents organizing independently to create volunteer fire brigades that are responding to calls for fire across That's the awesome. city, right? Wow. Yeah, we're seeing um, 
people say that, you know, it's clear like grocery stores and stuff like that were closed during the biggest part of the rioting. Um, and so we saw folks from the city um, and from the suburbs go out to the outer ring suburbs, buy massive amounts of food and redistribute mm-hmm. it for free in the city's parks. See, that, that stuff doesn't get reported. At least I haven't seen it. Um, it's all, it's all happening. Shame. It's all yeah. happening. And um, people donating medical supplies. Again, uh, it was very clear this weekend that there were um, a number of white supremacist groups that had come into Minnesota to try and cause trouble. Um, and they were, there were black owned businesses on the North side of the city that were being, uh, fire was being set to them. Um, and so the residents on that part of the city, and again, we know it was them partially because some of them were actually caught. Um, and partially because, um, the, um, that was nowhere near the majority of the rioting, right? The majority of the rioting was on the South side of the city. There were no protests on the North side of the city, just like individual people lighting businesses on fire. Hmm. Um, And in response to that, the black community on the north side, um, including the NAACP, actually organized a bunch of people um, to have community defense patrols. Um, And so um, folks got onto these massive text loops and were able to coordinate when they saw suspicious activity going on. Um, Armed folks were able to respond um, and sort of chase folks off and make sure that um, none of the businesses or the community wealth that was being built there were jeopardized. Um, so we're just seeing an immense amount of like ad hoc in the moment support of people providing for their own and their community safety. And, and that's really beautiful. So I, I know you're, you're focused on Minneapolis, but obviously with, uh, you know, other cities, other communities are, are hearing, hearing this message about abolishing police. Maybe they don't have the same, you know, foundation and the research and investigation work that you guys have done really into this. And maybe as you laid out at the beginning here, haven't sort of seen the cycle of failed reforms. So I would say a lot of, a lot of cities across the U S have seen the same cycle of failed reforms, but I mean, do you think that, I know you've said every community is different, but do you think you have sort of developing a blueprint that could be used as, as a loose outline to, to be implemented in other cities? I certainly hope so. Um, I think there are a lot of models that already exist in Minneapolis and around the country for what alternative community safety can look like um, mm-hmm. and what community-led safety can look like. Um, but I do think that Minneapolis is sort of at the very beginning stages of an unprecedented experiment um, in the United States or nearly unprecedented. Um, and I'm excited about that. And I do feel like there are going to be mistakes that we make here and lessons that we learn here that are useful for the rest of the country. Um, and so I hope that people have an opportunity to do this work in their own communities. Um, and again, I'd encourage people in other cities, um, who are doing this work and are interested in this work, um, to check out the MPD 150 website, MPD 150.com. Um, I really do think that we wouldn't be in the place that we are right now if we hadn't taken some of that history and some of those visionary ideas and some of the resources that are already present in our community and sort of bring them into one really cohesive, unified narrative. Um, I think that that work was pretty instrumental to getting to the point that we're in now where people understand the context of this thing, what the problems are with it and where we can go from here. So just, just one last question, maybe one or two. Um, yeah, I, I know you kind of we're, we're talking about the different, uh, you know, different sort of security forces, private security or militias or community watches that, that could uh, that could pop up. Would there be any? I mean, do you foresee any sort of? 
you know, set of set of laws around that that would that would regulate that bit on the community level. Um, I guess what comes to mind is if you have you know different private security forces and you know maybe you know two different neighborhoods that are close by. How would they uh, mediate disputes or disagreements? Things things of that nature. Yeah, I mean, I don't. I so far we haven't seen any. Right, it's emerged organically in response to the needs mm-hmm. on the ground. Um, I think that there are a lot of possibilities about what that could look like, but I also think that we're really aware also um, that that could go badly for black and brown folks on the ground here in Minneapolis too, right? There are a lot of folks with an internalized suspicion or fear of black people, as we've seen with police departments, but that's true sort of across the board in America. I mean, even those of us who are black have bias around that. Um, And so I think we're really worried about replicating the same systems of like racialized control um, that the police have been for many years, right? And I certainly trust my neighbors more than I trust the police, but we're going to need to have some very deep um, conversations about how those militias um, don't recreate the same systems of oppression and harm um, that we see that state exercising. Um, So I think that's going to be a really important um, topic to keep talking about and doing political education around and having like deep informed conversations about as we move forward. All right, Tony. So, I don't have any other questions right now, but as this develops, you know, I mean, this situation is, like I said at the beginning, this is historical. Uh, Everyone is talking about it. All eyes are on uh, Minneapolis right now. But before I let you go, just, uh, you know, one more time, plug away MPD 150, tell people where they get the info and uh, and all that good stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So MPD 150, again, um, is... um the first independent history of the Minneapolis Police Department. Um, It's dozens of interviews with community members, um, and it's a vision for how we can create a police-free community. Um, You can find the report, which is about 40 pages long, at mpd150.com slash report. There's also an audiobook version. So if you're um, a serious, serious podcast head, um, it's about 90 minutes long, and I think it's a really good listen. I help produce it, so I'm proud of it. Um, And I'll say also, um, beyond that, there's a lot of incredible other abolitionist work that's happening in Minneapolis that we didn't get a chance to go into. Um, Reclaim the Block is is the organization doing a lot of the direct policy organizing around shifting resources from the police department to other models. Um, Black Visions Collective is also very deeply engaged in that work. That's an all-black organization. Um, And then um, there are other organizations and efforts that are happening on the ground here in Minneapolis as well. My favorite has been... um, uh, cadre of anarchists and other folks took over an entire hotel um, mm-hmm. and offered the space up to homeless people um, who were being criminalized by the curfew restrictions um, in the wake of the riots. And so that has turned into this vibrant, beautiful mutual aid center um, where people are taking care of each other and getting housing needs met. Um, that's at the Sheraton. So I think that um, projects like that are what gives me hope um, for my city that we can create this police-free society that we want to see so badly. All right, Tony. Well, thank you so much for your time today and uh, keep up the great work. Yeah, thanks so much, Sean. Thank you for listening to today's show, another great episode of Felony Friday. As you know, Felony Friday is one of three shows we have here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Of course, we kick off every single week with our Monday show hosted by Mark Clare. It's our longest-running program, our flagship program, where Mark interviews leaders in the liberty movement. Every Wednesday, we have Electric Liberty Land, hosted by Brian McWilliams. It's your weekly shot of culture, comedy, liberty, swearing, 
and just just good fun. Check that out. You can get all three shows by subscribing for the great price of $0 per month. You get everything that we have here. So please check everything out. And uh, if you like it all, please think about, consider supporting what we're doing here at Lions of Liberty. A great way to do that is by joining the Lions of Liberty Pride. You can do that by going to patreon.com slash Liberty. Another great way of doing that is by uh, following, liking, sharing our stuff on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Liberty. On Instagram and Twitter, we are at Lines of Liberty. And the discussion forum where all the greatest and brightest minds go to to talk about politics, liberty, everything that's happening in the world today, current events, the Lions of Liberty Forum on Facebook, which you can find by typing Lions of Liberty Forum in the search bar at the top of Facebook, clicking search, comes up, say you want to join it, answer a question, bam, you're in, and the rest is just going to be a great journey for you. So check that out. That's all I have for today. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning.